Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. I'm glad you're with me today for the very first episode of the Liberty Cafe. Since we're just getting started, I thought I would let everyone know kind of what we're going to try and do here on the Liberty Cafe. And what I really want to do is focus on the fault lines that we see in the public debates of our day on culture, on politics, on religion, whatever it might be. You know, when people in, are engaging in these debates today, what they often try to do is position themselves as being in the mainstream. So, for instance, a, a liberal or even a moderate might call Bernie a socialist on one hand and then label Mark Meadows as a right-wing extremist, and so they are attempting to put themselves right there in the middle. But really, when you get right down to it, they're actually socialists themselves. Unfortunately, this takes place not only in the Democratic side of things, but also on the Republican side. And the exact same thing happens in, in religious debates as well even sometimes in uh, those uh, conservative or evangelical uh, denominations. So the way, to, I think, to get to these fault lines, to help us understand this better, is by going into the Bible, by using those biblical dividing lines right, so that we can see things like right and wrong, good and evil in these debates of today. There, there's a couple of things that that particularly stand out to me in uh, these thing in these dividing lines. One is how folks want to pretend like the things they're doing to oppress us are actually acts of compassion. Uh, we see that all the time. And then another is the the absolutely ridiculous links that people will go to to deny the existence of God. You know, we, we really see this everywhere, but it's especially obvious with the elite in this country, you know, the ruling class, the, the coastal society, the, the so-called experts in intelligentsia. So with that as a background, uh, let's go ahead and get started. I can't think of a more fitting topic for us to talk about on our first episode of the Liberty Cafe than socialism. Uh, there's a, a couple of reasons, at least, why that should be the case. Uh, first is because Socialism is at the heart of uh, most of our economic problems we face today and many of our moral problems and failures we face in society today. The, the second is because socialism is on front and center display in the Democratic primary. I mean, we, we, we've seen over there what happens when uh, Bernie Sanders decided to go full socialist on us this time. Not that he wasn't full socialist before, but I think uh, some of his opponents uh, called him out on that, and he was uh, obligated to follow through on where he is. And even in the in the Democratic primary, that seemed to be a bit too much for some of the voters. Maybe not necessarily because they opposed it, but just perhaps because they thought it wouldn't sell in the General Assembly. Uh, by, by the way, I think this also shows us that just how bad a candidate Hillary Clinton was in 2016. She barely made it by Bernie, 
And in fact, if it hadn't been for the superdelegates, she probably wouldn't have made it past him. And so the, the fact that uh, you know, he, he essentially got trounced in this primary, came in second place, but, but didn't serve so well. Uh, so I think it just shows how bad Hillary was back then. But back, back to today, I think what we see here is, again, this principle of, of folks pushing somebody out far to the left so that they can all of a sudden proclaim themselves in part of the moderate middle. But the, the truth is that there's no body in the Democratic primary around this time who's not a socialist. They all are. If you don't think Joe Biden is a socialist, you're just wrong. Um, He's just not quite as obvious a socialist as uh, Bernie is and uh, just the same as Hillary and all the other Democrats that are running. So I, what, what I'd like to do is kind of interact with this subject uh, through a, um, a blog post that Douglas Wilson wrote on his blog um, post, um, Blog and My Blog. It's a great site for those of you who have not seen it before, and I'd highly recommend it. And he really, uh, is the, the blog post is entitled, Three Reasons Why Socialism Should Not Be Considered as the Butterfly's Boots. And I'd like to just kind of work my way through those reasons. And, and I agree almost 100% of the time with Douglas Wilson. In, in this particular post, I find one area where I would add on to what he said, but nothing that I would disagree with. The first thing he says why we shouldn't, look at socialism in a favorable light. And, and he's trying to base all this and saying it's not biblical, I think, is what he's trying to do here. The first thing he says, it's theft. Right? Socialism is theft, therefore it's not biblical. And he, and he talks about that in the concept that, you know, just like the seventh commandment prohibits adultery, presupposes the institution of marry, marriage, um, so does the... Um, the, the Ninth Commandment against stealing presupposed the institution of um, private property. Right? So people have private property, and you shouldn't go take it. And when the government uh, goes around taking your property, that's just the same as the somebody in the private sector taking your property. And of course, when somebody not in government takes your property, if they get caught, they go to jail. But that doesn't happen in the case of government. And, and Wilson uh, says it in this way. People try to get around this by pretending that this reality doesn't apply to socialism because we are talking about government policies, not porch climbing burglary. The Bible only prohibits theft in the private sector. I see. So if Ahab had done what he did to Naboth via a program of land reform or eminent domain or zone redistricting, Elijah would have nodded to himself saying, that's more like it? Well, Wilson's spot on here. Uh, you, you just can't get rid of uh, the concept of theft just because the government is involved in that. I mean, m most of the time when the government is doing something, people forget about this, and, and they just want to look at it from a practical perspective, right? Does it work, right? But as, as we'll, and we'll see in a bit, actually, most of the time it doesn't work. 
But, but here the point is, is that we've, we first need to look at government from a moral perspective. Is a certain government program right or is it wrong? That should always come before the practical. So, so I want to say here, because the, the um, scriptures do have a, a category of legitimate taxation, that doesn't mean that the government can still steal from you. Right. And Wilson talks about that. He says, okay, if that's the case, because they can tax, and he, and he focuses on Romans 13, verses 6 to 7, he asks, where is the dividing line between the two? And, and he puts up something which I think is a legitimate dividing line, and he says this, it's when the government uses its power of taxation in an attempt to rival or surpass God's financial claim on us, which is the tithe, the government is abusing its authority to tax. So essentially, if they're taking more than 10% of your income, which is approximately what we would say the tithe is, then they're doing something wrong. And, and I, I agree with that because I think that um, that's always the problem with government. It's trying to replace God and take its place. Right. When, particularly when we're in a godless society, as we are in, in many cases today, the, the government becomes the idol, becomes the god to the people. And, and that's absolutely right. But, but I think it's, it, it's not the only reason, and I think maybe not even the primary uh, measuring stick that we can use for that. Because at that point, so if, if, the, if the people offer another program, you know, the legislature in some state or Congress comes up with another program, and if spending is already being funded beyond, you know, above the 10% tie that the government should be getting, then how do we judge that individual program, right? Do we just say, well, it's not legitimate because uh, they can't spend the money? On it, well, I, that's that's a possibility, but I, I'd like to set up a, another test that we can use on these programs, and it's whether or not the government should be doing the activity in the first place. Right? Should it be engaged in welfare? Should it be engaged in consumer protection? Should it be engaged in, in this program or that program? And and I think uh, we we actually have a lot of information in. Um, in scripture to help us on that. But I'm not going to go through that uh, right now. That's for a program for another day. But right now, I'd just like to use as our measuring stick the purpose of government. Right? What, what's the purpose of government? Well, let me read what Luke 4 says to us here in verses 18 and 19. If you remember, this is when Jesus had first begun his, his ministry and had gone to uh, his hometown of Nazareth and gone into the scriptures and read uh, from Isaiah. And, and this is the Luke version of uh, telling us what he said. And this is Luke 4, starting 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right. So, based on that, and a lot of other scripture, which I won't get into this time as well, I, I would suggest that the, the purpose of government 
civil government is to secure our liberty. You know, that, that's what Christ came for. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, and that was us. Before we were saved, we were captives to sin, to our own sinful flesh, and to the Satan. We couldn't get away. And he came to set at liberty those who were oppressed. So if that's what Jesus is doing, that's what all the rest of us should be working to support. Right? We can't do that, of course. Uh, well, we can't set at liberty those who are oppressed, but we, we can proclaim liberty to the captives because we still need to hear it, even though Christians still need to hear it, even though we're not captives anymore. But there's plenty of captives out there who still need to hear this. And so all the institutions and all the people who are in under Christ, which is, of course, everything, need to be doing that as well. And that's you should be doing it whether or not you're a Christian. And certainly uh, that's the case for all civil government who is under the authority of Christ, who is now the king sitting on the um, on his throne. And uh, Romans 13 makes it very clear that these are... Uh, the people who are in government are instruments for God's good and also for terror to those who disobey him. So if the government is not is using tax dollars for something other than setting at liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaiming liberty to the captives, then I'd suggest it's illegitimate. And so Consumer protection laws, welfare, eminent domain, economic regulation, even a lot of public health laws, I, I'd suggest, are just illegitimate because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is setting at liberty those who are oppressed, protecting us, basically, from those who would take our liberty from us right, and use the power of the sword, the steel sword, in order to do that. We'll, we'll talk more about that in, in future episodes. The second thing that Wilson does is he talks about envy, that socialism shouldn't be favored by Christians because it's based on envy. right? And, um, and that's really what it is. It, socialism sets up this zero-sum game. right? It, it's just like mercantilism back in the old days that the English used and others that it's a zero-sum game, we're only going to gain if they lose. So we go take their gold, you know, back in mercantilism. We get their gold because we force them to buy from us. And then we win, they lose. Right? That's the way that works. Same thing in, in uh, socialism today. Right. We're going to take from everybody else, and we're going to give that to somebody else. But... And they're going to benefit from it. Maybe that's a welfare program, you know, because they've got too much. They don't have enough, so we have to take from them to do that. But, but that just undermines the entire biblical case of that God is growing prosperity. He has been throughout history, and it's continuing to go. It's not even all over the place. It's not a linear, but that's what happens. And, and Wilson uses uh, Acts 14.17 to uh, highlight this, which says, Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, and that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Socialism doesn't do that. Right? It, it's just based on envy, whereas the 
abundance that we find in God's world as we work at it through the system of private property, that's where the where gladness fills our hearts. The third thing that Wilson talks about here is um, just that it doesn't work, right? And and it, and it doesn't. Socialism doesn't work. It never has, right? That was one of the key things that Reagan saw uh, for a long time and what ultimately led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. He recognized that socialism didn't work, that markets do work, right? Uh, and that if we just kept going along the same lines, essentially the Soviet Union would go broke because they couldn't afford to keep up with us. And so he saw that and... Uh, and he acted on that. His policies were based on that. They were also, of course, based on the the evilness of socialism in, in the co- communist system, well, communist form, anywhere really. And uh, but in the Soviet Union in particular. And so it was, it was both a moral and a practical one. But but the fact of the matter is, it doesn't work, and it fell apart over there. And the main reason, I won't get too far down into this from an economic perspective, but it doesn't work because socialism eliminates prices. And prices are very important. Economies can't work. Markets can't work efficiently without prices. Because prices are needed for three reasons, right? They're needed for information so that we can determine, producers can determine scarcity. They're needed for calculation so that producers can calculate their profits or their potential profits out in the future. And then they're needed for stability, for planning purposes. Right? Prices help us do all the three of those things. That's where the efficiency of markets come in. And without prices, you don't have that. Um, and as we're going to see in a minute, that um, even if you have a market like we have today in America where there's still prices going on in it, it's not just a pure communistic system, pure socialistic system where there's no prices and people are, things are just handed out. We still have prices today over here, but they're so distorted by regulation and subsidies and, and other interventions in the market that prices don't work the way they're supposed to. And, and that's why our economy doesn't grow like it should be growing, doesn't provide the prosperity that it should. So to finish this off, I'd just like to interact with a couple of objections to um, what Wilson has put out here. One, that's a criticism directly of what Wilson wrote, and another that uh, doesn't understand socialism very well and what it is. The first is by uh, Stephen Neal uh, from Building Jerusalem. He's a, a pastor over in, in England, and, he, and he's actually, in a lot of ways, it seems like, I don't know much about his preaching, but from his uh, social and economic views, he's a lot like uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous and and very good uh, pastor over in England um, many years ago, in in the mid to to late uh, 20th century, and who was a stalwart Christian and preached great sermons, but was a flaming liberal on the... the, um, economic side. It seems like, uh, again, I don't know much about his sermons, but uh, he, he seems to be, a, Stephen Neal seems to be a flaming liberal as well. And, and basically he, he says that you know, Wilson didn't make his case because the uh, 
presumption of property rights in the Eighth Commandment doesn't reckon with the concept of public ownership. Right. And, and then he goes on to say, whether we want to advocate for state ownership or some form of cooperative is neither here nor there. The fact is that property rights can be recognized as existing under prop- public ownership. And, and, and I think just Stephen Neal gets it all wrong. Uh, for, for one thing, it just ignores what we talked about earlier, is that government can only be doing things that are securing our liberties. And for the most part, public ownership just doesn't do that, right? Whether it's public ownership of parks, uh, of um, schools, of hospitals, of, um, you know, and then, of course, public ownership of beyond that of, of private industry. You can't do that. Now, Gary North likes to talk about um, private property or, or property ownership and the concept of the Trinity. And, and I think he's right on on that. That, you know, in the Trinity, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they all work together and they all own together, right? But each has different roles. So he says even in, in, um, in, in the human world, that property ownership is modeled after that. And, and, and I agree with that, that we have a responsibility to use our property in a way that doesn't harm others, but also benefits others, right? And and so, you know, some of that can be sometimes that, you know, ownership can be by multiple people. It can be even when one person in a family owns property, that that property is owned by others in the family as well, as a, like a mother and a father, husband and wife. You can have partnerships, but also there, there's a government interest in that property, mainly to make sure that that property isn't used to harm other people. Now, of course, regulation goes way beyond what it should on that. that, that you know, if you use your property within your property and you, you want to do whatever you want to do with it, that's be fine. If you want to put a big building, a small building, a plant, you know, a residence, whatever, the government shouldn't be able to interfere with that. They do today, but they shouldn't be able to. But it's when you use your property to go harm somebody, either physically, you, you take your something, a rock off your property and throw it at somebody, or you build a plant on it and then you pollute the the water or the air through that. The, the government can step in then. But but as far as this, this concept of public ownership of property, just in and of itself, that you just can't find that in Scripture. Stephen Neal's wrong on that. The, the second thing I want to talk about is um, a piece written by the Foundation for Economic Education. Now, I love FEE, is what we what they're called. And, and I first actually learned about them back in 1989, and I went to a seminar for uh, students and young adults back then. And that's where I first came into contact with really true free market economics, the, what's called the Austrian School. And today... Even though I've brought a lot of my biblical training into my belief in economics, I still think that Austrian economics really describes how the world works better than any other form of economics that that I've seen. Now, mainly that's because we don't have a true school of biblical economics yet. But we will one day. But while we're waiting, I think Austrian economics does the best. And, and so FIA is great, and they continue to promote 
that over the years. But they let a, a young student at the University of Rhode Island write this piece called The Myth of Scandinavian Socialism. And this piece is just wrong. And it, it's really disappointed uh, me with Fee. I'm not going to turn in my alumnus pen yet. I got a little alumnus pen a few years back from them. And I'm, I have it and just saw it the other day. And, and I'm glad I do. But but they, they need some work on this. And let me just read you a, a quick... Um, excerpt from this. It says, uh, it's basically subtitled, Social Democracy is Not Democratic Socialism. Again, kind of talking in the concept of Bernie and, and what the uh, has happened in the democratic debate. And he says, however, the Scandinavian countries are not good examples of democratic socialism in action because they aren't socialist. In the Scandinavian countries, like all other developed nations, the means of production are primarily owned by private individuals, not the community or the government, and resources are allocated to their respective uses by the government, by the market, not government or community planning. Well, again, th this concept is just very flawed. It, it misses the entire understanding of private property ownership. Right. So private property ownership consists of two things. One is the, the possession of the property itself, and two is the use of the property. Right. So when the government lets you keep your property but doesn't let you use it because of some kind of regulation, they are in essence taking ownership of that property. Right. They have taken an interest in it. Now, we don't recognize that in, you know, in our titles and those kinds of things today, but, but they do that. It's basically through what is known as police power of the state, that they can basically tell you what to do with your property to protect the public health and welfare of others. Right? And so they control your property through production, you know, they can, well, through regulation of production and use, and then they also do it through taxation, right? Just because they don't come and take your physical piece of real estate doesn't mean you're, they're not taking your property through taxation. And if they take your taxation either for above that 10% level or for reasons they shouldn't be, they're taking your property, right? So, and if they take that property and use it for something else, that they shouldn't be using it for, that is socialism, right? Just because they don't have title to the property doesn't mean that they are not owning, in some sense, the means of production, which is the classic definition of socialism. Another point on that is that production, if you will, doesn't include just material goods, you know, widgets or machine tools or whatever they might be, but, but services. And so e even in this article... Uh, the, the, the student says, in, in practice, the Swedish system involves local governments allowing families to use public funds in the form of vouchers to finance the child's education at a private school, and schooling, including schools run by the dreaded for-profit corporation. So just because they, they... So here's what happens, and this is what this young man just misses entirely, so they take your property, 
through high levels of taxation, and the levels of taxation over there are very high. Then they give it back to somebody else, and then those folks can take it and take it to a for-profit corporation. And he wants to say, well, just because a for-profit education institution is providing this uh, educational service, then all of a sudden that's not socialism. But if you see that chain, that, that's simply not the case. And it even talks about health care in, in there. But in those cases, um, you know, the health care is coming from government hospitals, and, and that's providing them. That's the means of production. Just because it's not a physical object doesn't mean it's not, doesn't mean it's not actually the means of production and socialism, right? You know, we've got a perfect example of all this in, in right here in Texas, right? Um, because high taxation, you know, takes property for unbiblical purposes of socialism just as much as, as eminent domain is when, um, uh, when it takes property from one person and gives it to a private business to produce cars. It, it works out the same. And here in Texas, we, we see this in the Toyota truck plant in San Antonio, which was constructed entirely on property taken through government, eminent domain by the government, and then later turned over Toyota. I mean, so Toyota is a private sector company, obviously, producing trucks, but they're operating on land that was taken from others through the government. Right? So whether that was physical property taken from others or just money, property money taken from others, it's, it's all the same thing. Well, anyway, that, that's our take on socialism today. And that's the end of our very first episode of Liberty Cafe. I'm so glad you could join me here today, and I hope you'll come back for many other episodes. Thank you.